The information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement, and should be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization is at such person's organization's sole risk. Please note this call will be recorded. I will be standing by should you need any assistance. It is now my pleasure to turn the conference over to Mr. Jim Washer, the Executive Editor. Hello and welcome. Uh, my name is Jim Washer. I'm Executive Editor with Energy Intelligence and I'm your host for today's virtual roundtable. We're looking at the outlook for gas markets in 2018 and to discuss this I'm joined by three of my colleagues. Uh, in Singapore, we have our Bureau Chief and resident LNG expert, Clara Tan. In London, with me here, uh, the editor of World Gas Intelligence, Jane Collin. And in Houston, our Bureau Chief and editor of Gas Market Reconnaissance, Tom Haywood. So, Jane, let's start with you and the most obvious question, and I'm sure Clara and Tom will have some thoughts on this as well. What are we expecting from gas prices and gas markets broadly this year? Okay. Okay, well, thanks and welcome, everybody. Um, well, actually, I'm not trying to weasel my way out of this question, but um, talking about global markets, but unlike um, the oil sort of oil markets, gas markets are still quite regional despite the growth in spot LNG trade, which is creating increased linkages. So I think probably it's better if I talk about Europe and then Clara talks about Asia, and Tom talks about the U.S., because those okay. are the three markets I'm mm -hmm. talking about. So, okay, we'll start off with Europe, which unfortunately is probably the least optimistic of any of the, of the three markets we're talking about. Just to give some context, gas share of the European energy mix has uh, fallen over the past decade, while renewables have made big inroads, and coal has remained fairly steady. Uh, but in terms of grounds for optimism this year, well, yeah, maybe there are. After a disastrous four years for gas from 2011 to 2014, gas had a relatively good 2016-2017 in Europe. Um, early figures uh, for last year, preliminary numbers for last year, suggest uh, EU gas demand grew about 6% to um, its highest since 2011. The increases over in the past two years are due to various factors, mainly cold weather, nuclear and hydro problems in some countries, economic growth and uh, cold gas switching. Um, what happens this year will hinge on the same kind of factors. Um, early forecasts are for demand to keep on growing this year, which will help support prices, although that will put pressure on the economics of these gas-fired power plants. Um, just to give you some idea about prices as well, um, I looked at some of our numbers over the past two years. So just got the figures here. Futures prices on the UK MBP, which is one of the biggest hubs, along with the TTF, the main hub in Europe, uh, began 2016 at... Um, around 480 per million BTU. Uh, they began last year at just under six per million, this dollars per million BTU. Spot LNG prices in Southwest Europe were assessed by us at the start of um, 2016 at around 565, and last year at around $8 per million BTU. But today, the MBP month ahead price is roughly 740, Spot prices are assessed at over nine, which means that both prices, both sets of prices, have increased about 50% over the past uh, two years. Um, the futures curve shows them dropping um, to less than $6 in July, June, uh, but 
which you could sort of could expect because they tend to be quite seasonal, but that's still over uh, $1.50 higher than they were this time last year, or the same time last year. Okay. Um, so, Clara, what about the Asian market outlook for this year? Right. Okay. In uh, Asia, the market has been rather bullish. Uh, we are seeing the spot prices in Northeast Asia. They have doubled in the last six months to more than $11 per MMBTU in winter. Uh, that's mainly due to Chinese uh, demand, due to coal to gas switching policy, and the very cold weather in Japan, Korea, and Taiwan. But uh, we are still seeing we are seeing that post winter prices uh, are easing slightly to maybe nine to ten dollars. So in Asia, the Asian market is very seasonal, so that can lead to very big swings in prices. On the supply side, it was a bit tight during winter because uh, new projects were still in the process of ramping up, such as the first train at Yamal and the U.S. Cove Point project did not start up at the end of last year as scheduled. And this year, there's going to be more projects starting up in Australia, Russia, and the U.S. I think uh, there's about uh, 40 million tons per year. But uh, there will be ramping up over the next six months or so. That's the average uh, period they will need to ramp up. So we will, the impact of these new supplies will probably be more greatly felt in the second half of this year. And uh, Chinese demand has been pretty strong, and uh, that means uh, plants have uh, managed to avoid shutdowns in order to deal with oversupply. But uh, because we have already seen two very strong uh, winter price spikes in 2016 as well as 2017, um, we, we, are never, we can never be too sure that uh, another spike will not happen again later this year. What's interesting in Asia also this year is uh, we will see Bangladesh uh, becoming the next LNG buyer. The first FSRU is likely to start in uh, April. That is the plan. The country faces uh, declining gas production, and it has already signed its first long-term contract with Qatar. Um, then on the other hand, I think uh, Egypt imports are also expected to decline this year because of the start of its uh, big domestic zone gas fuel. So overall, I think the Asian market this year still looks quite strong and balanced. That's making a lot of sellers quite happy. Um, everyone is watching how Chinese demand would pan out uh, later this year. Okay, thanks. And Tom, what's your you. sort of um, main expectation for the North American market this year? Uh, well, it, it, it looks like it's going to start off pretty robust, relatively speaking. Uh, we've had an unexpectedly cold winter in the eastern U.S., which is really a one a key way to goose the gas market. And uh, and it promises to support prices in a $3 range into the spring and maybe even early summer. But long-term, uh, you know, fundamentals, more bearish fundamentals are going to catch up with the market, it would appear. Record production uh, is set to grow. It could get up to 80 BCF. Uh, a day, you know, sometime this year. Uh, and so any market moves to the upside uh, will be uh, pretty much uh, capped, just as they have this winter, actually. And it should pull prices lower, especially during uh, periods of slack weather demand going forward, because weather is still the uh, kingpin at this point in uh, U.S. 
uh, gas. Okay, thanks. Um, I want to come back to something um, Clara mentioned in passing. You mentioned China. Um, Beijing is trying to promote greater gas use, but they're, they seem to be encountering um, some problems there. So what exactly is happening, and how do you think it's going to affect gas demand? Yes, uh, China has been very determined to clear its skies, reducing pollution, and has ordered users in the residential industrial sectors to switch from coal to gas. And uh, the big and in, in, imports for China include both LNG and pipeline gas. But what we are seeing is uh, LNG has been the bigger beneficiary because of its flexibility, and uh, Central Asia also needs gas for its own uh, heating demand. And in the first 10 months last year, we are already seeing uh, Chinese gas demand increase by 19% to, that is to 186.5 BCM. And total LNG imports last year is going to be at least 50% higher than the previous year. And which means that China will overtake South Korea as the world's uh, second largest LNG market just behind Japan. And uh, there are already predictions that China will overtake Japan in terms of total gas imports in 2018. But uh, Chinese policy has been successful, but it has also exposed uh, a few faults in its gas system, especially the lack of gas infrastructure, pipelines, regas terminals, and storage tanks uh, that is needed to accommodate a sudden surge in demand during a very cold winter. Uh, it has uh, been forced to make a U-turn in its uh, policy by forcing um, factories to be to be shut and uh, coal ban had to be lifted in some areas which for which face uh, gas shortages. And uh, state importers are also facing losses for selling imported LNG at regulated domestic prices. But uh, it doesn't seem like all these uh, constraints would soften Beijing's position on uh, on gas. And uh, uh, actually, a winter heating plan last year, uh, last month, I'm sorry, for the next five years by Beijing showed that uh, they are very committed to this plan. They want uh, cleaner fuels to cover 70% of its heating consumption in northern China by 2025 and to further reduce coal use. So Chinese appetite for more gas imports would continue. And uh, we are already seeing the state importers, CNOC and Sinopec and PetroChina, they are saying that they would will, they will be better prepared next winter by expanding their gas uh, storage tanks and pipeline capacities. So that's what everyone is watching to see whether how, how, how fast it will continue to grow this year in terms of Chinese demand. Okay, thanks. Um, you also mentioned, I'll ask this question for Jane maybe on, on, on new projects. Clara mentioned some new capacity coming on stream uh, this year. She mentioned, I think, in the States and Australia. Uh, now, this is, we've been very thin on um, new sort of final investment decisions on new projects oh, yeah. the last few years. I mean, what's your view on new projects getting sanctioned, sanctioned this year? Are we going to see a lot? Uh, short answer is no, I don't think so. But I can give you a slightly longer answer if you want. Please do. Okay. Um, well, basically, if... Um, if you think the LNG markets are going to rebalance in the early 2020s and it takes five years to build a greenfield LNG project, you really not need to FID this year to avoid sort of potential shortages or price spikes or volatile prices in the early 2020s, especially as this um, follows a very fallow a couple of years or actually more than 
couple of years for Project FIDs. Uh, last year, there was only one, which was Ennis Coral Floating Project off Mozambique. The year before, there were just two, a third train at BP's Tangu in Indonesia and Elba Island, a small plant in the US. Um, this partly reflects a change in supply. Well, this the hiatus sort of reflects the fact that project developers are desperately trying to bring down costs, which to a certain extent reflects a kind of change in supply mindset, I'd say, over the past few years. A few years back, it was like, oh, okay, well, we need to build a project. It's going to cost us this much, and we need to make a profit, so you, the buyer, just need to pay us like what we think you, you need to pay us. They've now realized that if gas is to be affordable and to compete against alternatives, prices have to be a lot lower. You just can't do this. So anyway, you asked which projects might go ahead this year. Um, I think, well, actually possibly the only one, well, outside the U.S. going ahead this year um, is probably going to be the smallest uh, Fortuna FLNG project off Equatorial Guinea. Um, Trader Gumbo has agreed to lift the entire output and everything else is in place for FID. Well, everything apart from the crucial need to raise um, $1.2 in debt finance. Um, the, the partners, which are Ophir, um, which is a small independent, and an alliance, an, an alliance called One LNG, which is a joint venture between um, Schlumberger and Golar, um, originally planned to get the money from a Chinese consortium. Everything seems to be going well, but it's fallen through now. What they say now is they've got, um, they're talking to a, a leading Asian bank, in inverted commas, about raising the money on the same terms. Um, assuming all goes well, and I must say, Fortuna Watchers, um, at EIG think it will, um, FIG could come in the first half, um, which admittedly would be about two years later than they originally said um, or planned. Um, beyond Fortuna, it would seem to be a race between Qatar, Mozambique and the US. Um, Qatar last year threw the cat among the old LNG pigeons by announcing it, it was going to boost its uh, ultra-low-cost uh, liquefaction capacity by 30% to over 100 million tonnes a year by 2024. But as things stand now, what we can find out, um, they still don't appear to have decided how to split the new capacity between um, de-bottlenecking existing trains or building new ones or, or lining up partners. Um, which means probably FID is unlikely before the end of 2018 as it has to undertake feed work, design development and a feasibility study. So admittedly, um, it, it should be pretty straightforward as a gatter is, um, understand the geology. And then, re then you've got Mozambique. Well, realistically, this looks further off really. Um, we've got the offshore project, Ennis offshore project, the small coral, and then what you have is two um, onshore projects at the same site, one planned by Anadarko called Mozambique LNG, and another um, Mamba, um, which is Eni, though Exxon is likely to play a very big role in that. But um, Eni's pushed Mamba down its priority list um, to make way for Fortuna, I mean for Coral, sorry. And whatever Anadarko says in public, there have to be questions over its commitment, really, to Mozambique LNG. Um, the project is basically a legacy of a very active um, exploration program in the frontier African areas. Um, and aside from Mozambique, Anadarko has withdrawn from nearly all the other African frontier areas to focus on um, particularly shale in the U.S., but uh, some work in South America. Um, it doesn't have 
much well any real LNG experience. It's uh, sold down its stake to 20%, so can't really sell it down anymore. And um, the feeling is that probably what it's trying to do is get the project FID ready before selling on to somebody else. Mm. But anyway, so and in any case, um, with any shoving um, Mozambique LNG down its project list. And it may make little sense for Anadarko to go ahead as the idea of building on the same site at Pemba in northern Mozambique is to share some facilities. So, okay, so maybe not a lot in the way of FIDs. Maybe the US is different, though, I think, maybe. Well, let's talk about that. Um, on this, on this topic of project costs, um, in Clara, this is something you've written about recently. There's been some very aggressive claims by some of the US LNG developers about how, how they're getting um, their costs, their break-even costs down. Can these claims be believed, do you think? Um, yes, the U.S. projects have been very interesting. Um, they have been uh, putting up like different business models to buyers, and but one common theme among them is they will be a low-cost producer. And you are right that they have been making very aggressive cost claims. And I think it's important for buyers to be uh, cautious about what these what are included in these cost claims. So whether they include associated facilities like power plants, like pipelines, and whether they include financing costs as well, some of these uh, cost claims have not been very specific. So I think it's uh, it will be will be important for buyers to do their due diligence in uh, checking out these uh, cost claims. And so far, most of the sellers are saying that they can produce LNG at a liquefaction cost as low as $500 per ton, um, focusing on standardization, modularization. But uh, among the U.S. projects, um, there haven't been any new FIDs since Chenier uh, sanctioned the first two trains of Cosper Christie in May 2015 and a smaller project at Elba in late 2016. So it has been quite quiet since. But this year, uh, Chenier looks very well positioned among the U.S. projects to sanction the third train at Cosper Christie. Uh, it has already sunk costs in the first two trains, and it has lined up some buyers, including CNPC. And uh, just this week, uh, they have announced a new contract with Trafigura. I think that's uh, likely to be coming from the third train. And uh, the CEO of Chenier has, uh, has said that He's making the FID for the third train his priority, and uh, he has been quoted as saying that the cost will be $500 to $600 per ton, excluding financing. So if uh, Chenier can achieve, will be achieving its third train at $500 to $600 per ton, excluding financing, um, I think it will be interesting to see whether other players like Tellurian or uh, Venture Global will be able to match that considering most of them are uh, new projects and not brownfield trains like the third train at, the, at Cosper Christie. And uh, we are seeing a lot of U.S. projects in the queue to secure FERC approvals or DOE approvals, but uh, it's not likely that all of these projects will get the green light to go ahead because uh, they're going to face very uh, strong competition from Qatar, even, uh, which is, has the lowest uh, feed, cap, feed gas costs. Okay, thank you for that. Um, I mean, let's think more broadly about the outlook for the U.S. gas industry. Uh, and one thing I was going to ask you, Tom, is um, this time last year we were 
Um, I think we were just a day or so away from the inauguration of President Trump. I mean, has it been overall a good, has he been a good president for the U.S. gas gas industry, would you say? Well, uh, I'd say yes and no. Um, you know, he has followed that drill baby, drill Republican uh, rule book. Uh, he recently opened up gassy areas off the Atlantic coast and eastern Gulf of Mexico to drilling in the, in the latest five-year drilling plan. But he pulled back. Uh, from Florida waters, uh, it looked like a little bit, little bit more like political theater there when the Republican governor goes and has lunch with uh, the Secretary of the Interior, and suddenly they're out. And now all the governors on the East Coast, or almost all of them, are asking for the same consideration. So, you know, the, you know, so that that looked to be more of a of a thought to you know people who want to drill in those areas. Um, he's also, but he has loosened, his administration at least, has loosened environmental regulations, um, such as trying to pull back from regulations raining on methane emissions or deep sixing Obama-era restrictions on drilling on some uh, federal lands. Um, and this has been shared by many in the industry, although uh, you just don't undo rules willy-nilly. You know, it's a process. But it has encouraged a lot of people in the industry that they will get, you know, get the jackboot of the government off their necks um, in their perspective. But, you know, I would caution that because that is a double-edged sword. I was talking to Don Santo about the pipeline, you know, aggressive pipeline plans to, to you know, push through areas that uh, are environmentalist or, or strictly opposed to. And, um, you know, Santa pointed out that's a double-edged sword because it's not going to help the industry if it looks like an environmental bad actor um, when the political pendulum inevitably swings left. So, um, you know, it would behoove the industry, and many, many companies are trying to do that now, to kind of get ahead of it uh, and look more environmentally friendly and cooperate with there are many that are cooperating with methane restrictions, even even stronger than than what they're being asked to do, and that would probably be the wisest uh, move at this point, because you know you don't want to you don't want to be left out in the cold uh, when the other side gains a gains an upper hand. Okay, Sorry, that's the answer. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. All right, well, look, at this point, why don't we uh, just take a break and see if we are getting any uh, questions coming in from our audience. At this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone telephone. You may withdraw your question at any time by pressing the pound key. Once again, to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone telephone. We will pause for a moment to allow questions to queue. Okay. Um, now, while we're waiting, I mean, this is mainly about sort of the gas market outlook for 2018, but let's look a little bit further ahead. Um, we've got declines in renewables costs, uh-huh. and a lot of people are saying this is you know, potentially dangerous for gas's long-term future. I mean, Jane, what's your sort of view? Is, is gas facing an existential threat here from renewables? Well, I mean, I think it's fair to say the industry is probably, or the gas industry is probably under mess 
underestimated the speed of technological change in the power sector, particularly the cuts in renewable costs and also advances in battery storage. Um, we saw last year offshore wind in Europe now rival solar PV in terms of uh, tumbling costs and mounting investment. Um, North Sea wind technology became increasingly competitive against gas. With bidders at some North Sea auctions winning more contracts without subsidies, which mm. essentially underscores the fact the momentum for clean energy is going to continue without government support, you know, with or without subsidies. But the big thing about re renewables, as everybody always says, is they're intermittent. The sun doesn't always shine. The wind doesn't always blow. So you need backup for when these things don't happen. Mm. Um, what we've seen um, many of the world's biggest gas, you know, oil and gas companies, Shell, BP, Total, um, arguing that in a decarbonising world, gas is ideal or is the ideal backup, the bridge fuel to. Uh, low carbon worlds, if not the destination fuel, and as a result, they've been shifting more of their portfolio, spending more money on gas, so gas is a bigger part of their portfolio. But um, the big question, and I almost hate to say it when we're talking about optimism for the industry, um, is basically what if gas isn't needed? What if battery storage, along with other demand-side measures, um, could replace gas as a backup so that short-term fluctuations in electricity demand, when you need a bit of power just quickly to stabilise the grid, what if battery storage batteries could do that? Um, they've not been wide, storage technologies have not been widely used to date, but a test case is now underway in South Australia, which gets around 50% of its uh, power from wind, but which has, until recently, or over the past two years or so, been suffering from crippling um, electricity shortages, particularly during the blistering summer, which it is in now. Um, Tesla boss um, Elon Musk, you know, technology titan, bet last year he could end the outages, the blackouts, by installing an industrial-scale lithium-ion battery in, in South Australia to support the grid, which is it's called a power pack battery. Anyway, it's paired with a wind farm in the state. And since starting up in December, um, it seems to have worked fine. In fact, um, it's said to have responded very quickly to a couple of recent events, including an unexpected outage at one of Australia's biggest coal plants. Um, if this technology does spread, it could have huge implications for gas-fired power as backup uh, to renewables. Um, battery prices at the moment are still too high to be commercially viable, really. But costs of a lithium-ion battery pack have been falling by about 10 to 15 percent a year, and installation times for utility-scale battery arrays have also been shrinking. Um, actually, one more thing I was just going to say: it's not about renewables being competitive. I think they are. It's coal. I think you know gas is squeezed between coal on the one side and renewables on the other. Um, uh, many countries, despite you know the implications for emissions, are yeah, many countries, and particularly in geo Southeast Asia. We also see it in parts of Europe, um, Poland, Germany, um, have still have coal or lignite as a big part of their um, power mixes, um, either because it's cheaper than gas or it employs lots of people. You know, it's a big part of their economies. Yeah. And the other point I'd just like to make is, if gas suppliers want, like policymakers, environment well, whether environmentalists ever would, to take their claims of gas being a clean-ish fuel seriously, they really need to do something about tackling methane emissions. That's mm -hmm. the only other point I'd like to make. Okay. No, thanks. That's very interesting, particularly about what's going on in South Australia. Um, let's just check if we've got questions coming from our audience.
Yes, we do. We'll take our first question from Aaron Calder with Baker and O'Brien. Your line is open. Hello. Uh, this is a question about uh, United States production. Sure. Can you hear me? Okay. Uh, yeah, we can hear you. Go ahead. Okay. In your summary, you mentioned that bearish fundamentals places a uh, de facto cap on U.S. prices. Is this a supplier's reactive type of production, or are you seeing production currently surging and it's just not as obvious to the market because heating demand is so high? And uh, where is that production coming from? Is it the Marcellus uh, still, or is the Permian or other plays uh, still booming? Okay, so this is probably a question for Tom, I suspect. Uh, U.S. gas production, you know, part of the bearish fundamental picture that puts a cap on prices. Where's this production coming from? Is it disguised a little bit at the moment by uh, relatively high sort of seasonal demand? Tom, what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, this the recent cold event has really cut into uh, production freeze-offs and such up in the Northeast and even in Texas. Um, but what you're seeing is the um, you, what production isn't as seamless as it as it once was, especially with shale drilling. Um, it gets kind of uh, it gets kind of lumpy. We had a real surge in production uh, at the end of last year, and now it's beginning to taper off. But if you look at the um, at the at the at the amount of gas coming in, it looks like you know, production is just rising. Well, well, it's reaching a plateau and now it's leveling off a little bit, but it had a, it had a nice spike. Um, what you're seeing though is that shale drilling has created a new dynamic in production and one that we're becoming more and more familiar with and was sort of surprising to me because I didn't even think about it until about three years ago. Um, with the drilled but uncompleted, uh, wells. And so, you have these drilling programs that come in and are drilling all these um, drilling wells, but production comes from completions. It doesn't come from, uh, you know, from completions. It doesn't come from drilling. Uh, it used to be you drilled a well and you completed it. Now you drill a well and you wait to complete it, or, you know, often you, you stockpile. We're seeing the amount of ducks now rising again. Uh, in in the northeast, um, and so that 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 stabilizes production. It's used as a stabilizer. So, you know, it's hard to say exactly what's going on with production, but I can guarantee you that it is it is rising. And one of the reasons it's rising is because uh, the 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 supply centers, the northeast, can be somewhat regulated. But you don't have much control over how much gas is coming in from, say, the Permian, which is seeing record drilling, and they aren't waiting to complete well up there. And that gas is flowing in; the associated gas is flowing in, and, and it adds to the to the amount of gas. And you also have a lot of gas coming in from the Hainesville, which had been fallow, but it, the current pricing they they can be of value. So. Um, so those are the three main areas that you're seeing gas coming in, uh, the associated gas from the Permian, uh, new, new gas drilling in the Hainesville, but especially the uh, Marcellus Utica plays. Um, but the Marcellus Utica is um, 
you know, it, it has no, there's no way it's ever going to dry up, uh, you know, as far as production increases. But, you know, it could be more steady in, in coming in because of the ability of, of producers to regulate the flow of new production through use of ducks, the duck system. Does that help answer the question or? Yes. Uh, thank you very much. All right. Right, thank you, Tom. Um, do we have any other uh, questions from the audience? Thank you. At this time, we do not have any further questions. Okay. Well, we've got a little bit of time. We've got to wrap up in a second or two. But Tom, just to follow up on that, I mean, we've 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 seen this kind of consensus with analysts, and it's in the futures market. I think sort of reflects this as well that you're going to see gas prices in the sort of three dollar range for the foreseeable future. Is there anything? I mean, you talked, you know, explained to Aaron about this capital price. Is there, is there anything you can envisage that could push prices higher? Well, the real question is why would gas ever need to return to a four to five dollar range? Um, you know, the, the resource is, is extremely abundant, and the new drilling innovations that have driven break-even costs in the major shell place well under three dollars per MBTU. So. Any uh, any rise in a price, you know, like it, if we had a sustained rise to say 350, um, that would produce more gas than you can possibly imagine. Um, there wouldn't be using all that gas, and so the the overwhelming supply would push down, would pressure prices to go lower. Um, we seem to be in right now. We seem to be in a 275 to 325 maybe range. Um, longer term, it might be 250 to to 320, maybe. Um, you know, after the after the weather clears. Um, but 250 really isn't is is doable for a lot of uh, shale drilling uh, in the in the core areas. So why it would need to be, you know, why you would need to say that we wouldn't be able to supply, we will be able to supply. Uh, you know, the natural gas needs. And gas production in the United States is as high as it's ever been and is still rising, um, and for good reasons. We've got, we've got some new demand, uh, centers coming online. We've got Mexico, uh, which could go up to, say, 5 BCF a day next year. Uh, we have, you know, some LNG is starting to come online. It, it's not as high as that right now, but it will be about, 8 BCF by the year 2020, um, and the uh, industrial build-out is coming online. So there is some some demand that's growing, that but the production that we have available will will be able to supply that, and you know keep prices still in a in a range close to three dollars, maybe a, maybe a little above three dollar range, um, without any problems that we could see. I can't envision anything. Okay, well that's very uh, helpful, Tom. Uh, thank you for that. We are about out of time for today, so I should thank Tom and Clara and Jane for joining us for today's discussion. I should also mention before we wrap up today that this um, virtual roundtable today will in fact be the last uh, from Energy Intelligence in its current form. Uh, we're going to be launching in a few weeks' time um, a new series of more regular podcasts a format which should allow us to cover a wider range of topics uh, of interest to our audience. 
details of the launch of these podcasts will be available next month on our website, www.energyintel.com. So please keep an eye out for them. In the meantime, thanks for listening and goodbye.